Well, it's good to be back here after a month off. I'm really appreciative uh, to Lawrence for stepping in. Um, I have been preparing this series on Habakkuk for uh, a little while. I'm really excited to share it with you. Um, but I want to, the title, The Prophetic Mystery, Drawing Strength from God When It Is Most Needed. Um, Habakkuk is not a prophecy that he was to then spread to the nation. Habakkuk is a, is a book that reflects this prophet's journey um, with God in the midst of really trying and difficult and cir- circumstances that he was completely powerless in. And so we, we get out of Habakkuk this, this, this experience of, of a man who, st- the book starts and he is in utter desperation. The prayer that, that Mike read, it's a, it's a prayer of desperation, which is what we're going to cover today. It ends with him, the circumstances haven't changed, not at all. In fact, things seem even more bleak by the time you get to the end of the book. But he is in a different place. And so we're going to look at the transformation of this man, Habakkuk, as he moves from desperation to peace and confidence uh, in, short, in three short chapters. But I want to recall just a, a story for you. About 15 years ago, I was with an, an Indian leader. His name was Commander Matthew. He was an army commander before he came into the ministry. and he was, He's in, in his 50s at the time, a very well-respected man throughout the Indian churches and this network that he was a part of, one of the largest church planning networks in the country of India. And we went on a little walk during the conference that, that I was teaching at, and he was attending, and uh, we just went on a little walk during the break, and he was talking to me about the things that were going on in India, and I just, I just asked him some questions about um, why the work of God was so uh, powerful there in their midst. And he turned to me and he said, well, you guys don't know how to pray. I said, what are you talking about? We pray. He goes, no, 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 no. You guys don't pray. You guys don't pray. There's prayer, and then, then there's what he described as prayer. And the book of Habakkuk is a lesson of this type. All right, we're going to enter into Habakkuk's journey, and we're going to see him pray. And he's going to teach us how to pray. He's going to teach us how to, to approach God. He's going to teach us how to engage God. After that walk with Commander Matthew, um, I resolved to no longer just pray, but to, to start a journey of, of prayer that had the, the vitality and the sincerity and the integrity that, that he talked of. A little bit of Habakkuk's background, and, and it's essential to understand where he's coming from and some of the context that's present. So this is like a brief history of Israel in uh, just a few minutes. And so since the fall of humanity in the garden, God had been promising humanity a, a, a man who he would send would be born from woman, but it would be from God. And this, this man would, would wipe away death and destruction and suffering and evil. And this man would eventually come from the nation of Israel and so the nation of Israel was born through Abraham, and he has Isaac, and he has Jacob, and Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And Israel goes to Egypt in Jacob's time, 
most of you are familiar with these stories. And over the 400 years after they go into Egypt, the, the nation grows, but they become enslaved. And so there are two to three million people, but they're all enslaved to the nation of Egypt. So they, they cry out to God for deliverance, and God hears them, and God promises them, I will make you a great nation. I will give you a land that is flowing with milk and honey. You will no longer have to concern yourselves with foreign nations dominating and enslaving you anymore. You'll no longer have to concern yourselves with with the food and, and drink that you need to sustain yourself and your families. You just need to follow me. You just need to follow me. If you, if you follow me, all, all these promises will come true. If you don't follow me, the surrounding nations will attack you. You'll be impoverished. And you will no longer possess your own land, but you will be exiled into foreign nations. And so once Israel gets into the land, things are real choppy. For several hundred years, they are in this inconsistent wave back and forth of following God, of not following God. But overall, it's really unhealthy and they are not following God. And so they're constantly under attack from foreign nations. So they're tired of this place. And instead of calling out to God to be their king and to worship and serve him as if he were their king, they ask for a king, a human king. And so God gives them a king. But he says this, if you, if you have yourself a king, he will take you into idolatry. He will take you into greed. He will take you into injustice. And they said, no, 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 we still want a king. They have a bad king, then they have David. And God promises to David that he will someday have a son, and this son will be this man, this man who will destroy evil. But then David's son has another son. His name is Solomon. And Solomon begins his reign loving God and following God, but he marries 700 women. And these wives steal his heart. And he begins to worship false gods. He worships all of the gods of the other nations around him, the gods of his wives' nations. And his heart is drawn away, and God rips the kingdom from him. And his son, Jeroboam, is even more greedy um, and idolatrous than his father, Solomon, and God raises up an opponent. And so from that point on, the kingdom is split. Israel has become a divided nation. Ten nations to the north is Israel, two nations to the south, Judah. So Israel is in this divided state. And so if you read the books of First and Second Kings, which I'd encourage you to do, um, it's just the story. It's an alternating story back and forth between the, the reigns of the kings of Israel and the reigns of the kings of Judah. And generally the story is bad. The story is bad. So several hundred years into it, we come to this king from Judah. So Several, let me take a step back. Several centuries into it, Israel, the northern ten tribes, become so idolatrous that God brings in Assyria, takes them captive into complete exile. They never return. They never return. And Assyria started making moves on Jerusalem, but God saved Jerusalem and wiped out the entire Assyrian army. But some decades later, a man comes to reign in Judah. His name is Manasseh. And that's in chapter 21 of the book of Second Kings, and I would really encourage you to read it. 
because it gives you the context for the kind of place that Habakkuk was living in. So Manasseh, the text says that he did things worse than all of the kings that were before him, even worse than the other nations that they dispossessed when God used them to take over the other nations. So they went in and they did, you know, God used Israel to punish the nations that were present in the land that God had promised them. These nations were engaged in um, destructive, unjust, violent behavior, the worst of which was child, regular child sacrifice, the killing of their sons and daughters to gain the favor of the gods and to ward off evil. That's kind of like the full expression of evil. And this King Manasseh did that very thing. And it says that, that violence ruled Jerusalem and that blood filled the city from one end of the city to the next. So this was the king of Israel, a, lot, a man from the line of David. And so it, Jerusalem and Judah got to this place where God was just fed up, and he says, because of the deeds of Manasseh, I am going to take them into exile as well. So Manasseh dies, and he has a son, and his son's name is Josiah. And Josiah is the best king that Jerusalem had ever had. And he restored the, they discovered the Bible when they were doing some remodeling of the temple. They discovered the Bible. They literally discovered the Bible. They hadn't read it in decades. And so he reads the Bible is broken, and he institutes all these reforms throughout the nation of Israel. Josiah does. He's a young, he's a young man at the time. He's eight or 12 years old when he starts to rule. And one of the things he does is he reinstates the Passover. They hadn't celebrated Passover since they came out of Egypt. None of the kings had ever celebrated Passover. So it says Josiah was the best king that had ever reigned in Jerusalem. But he had two sons. For about a 12-year period, his two sons reigned. And they were like Manasseh. They were like Manasseh. And so Habakkuk had spent some time, he had lived during the reign of Josiah where things were good, things were just, things were right. There was justice in the courts, there wasn't violence and bloodshed. The king honored and worshiped God and he drew the entire nation into the worship of God as well with him. And so Habakkuk enjoyed one of the few peaceful seasons that Jerusalem and Israel had under their kings. But then these two, kings of Jos- these two sons of Josiah become kings, and it all goes south again. There's child sacrifice. There's the setting up of, of altars and statues and idols of other gods in the temple of God. And they are worshiping these other gods right in the same place where they were to worship the one true God. People are being killed. People are being sold. There is open prostitution. There is temple prostitution. There is the the killing and violence of children. There is murder. There is the the wealthy that are oppressing the poor and and stealing more and more from them. And there is no resolve uh, or justice in the courts because the the wealthy people control all of the courts. They're, they control all of the, the leadership, so there's no justice in the land. There's no hope. 
And so Habakkuk comes to this place where he sees all of these circumstances that are completely outside of his control. He's not in power. He is not an influential person. He sees all of this, and he takes it to God. And so the goal for this series, you know, we've been talking a lot about um, pain and suffering through the prophets, but we haven't talked a lot about what we can do, kind of habits, disciplines, pathways of growth, on how we can sustain ourselves, uh, on how we can pursue God so that God can sustain us when we are in these seasons where we have absolutely no control. So I want to read you, I want to read you the prayer again. So actually, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1 starts out, he says, this is an oracle or a prophecy that Habakkuk received. And so right at the beginning, it tells you that God has given something to Habakkuk. God has given something to Habakkuk. But you read the next three verses. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? The word cry there is a term that means repeated screams. All right, this isn't, you guys are probably familiar with The Office. We're about 10 years behind on most things as a family culturally in pop culture, but we just started watching The Office. So who's familiar with Office? All right, everybody. Okay, so this is not Toby, the HR guy, right? Where he just kind of talks like this, he never opens his mouth. This is not Toby. This is a repeated scream. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? He's talking to God. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed. Your law, God. Your law, God, has no power here. Injustice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So you, you, the, 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 the prophet starts out, the book starts out, God gave something to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk received it. But you read this prayer, you read this prayer and it's like, uh, Habakkuk doesn't seem to be receiving any answer or response from God. Nothing. He's calling for help. He's crying for violence. He's asking for deliverance for himself, for his family, for the nation. Nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. So, again, this, this book, three chapters, three short chapters... How do we engage God in such a way that creates the transformation inside of us so that we can endure circumstances that are beyond our control? That's, that's what we're going to be doing here for the next four weeks. And I want to answer four questions here from this short prayer, this, four, this short lament, complaint really, from Habakkuk. 
Four questions. What draws us to pray? What draws us to pray? The second, why do our prayers go unanswered? The third, how do we pray? And four, why do we keep praying? So I'm just going to touch on these. I'm just going to touch on these. But these, these verses give us some insight into these things. And obviously what, we're, what, I, what I would really like to see happen is, is for all of us as a church and as individuals. This, isn't, this is for individuals also. This is for individuals. This is one man with his God. And it is a back and forth between him and God. And we need to put ourselves into this circumstance. And we need to ask ourselves, um, do I have the kind of, of understanding of God and approach towards God that I'm going to need to endure circumstances that are beyond our control. Habakkuk didn't, didn't start this process with all of the resources he needed. We see over time that God will be working in this man's life. And we don't know how long, I mean, there's, there's four books. It takes 15 or 20 minutes to read through it. But this could have taken place over a period of years in Habakkuk's life. So the first question, what draws us into prayer? I'd say that what draws us into prayer is desperation and a sense of powerlessness. That's where it's got to start. There's a book that I'm going to refer to. I, I put it on the, the, uh, the realm under that, uh, the video that I put up on this week to introduce Habakkuk. There's a gentleman named Jerry Sitzer, and he wrote a book called When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayer. It's a very insightful book. And he says this. He says, when all other courses of action have been eliminated... When we stand at the edge of the abyss, when we approach God with empty hands and an aching heart, then we draw close to the true heart of prayer. Desperation drives us to prayer. The heart of true prayer is this cry of desperation. It is the cry of those who, committed to seeing God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, find themselves in circumstances that show little evidence that there even is a kingdom of God. He says that, that being in a place of desperation is the heart of prayer. And it's the case because that's where we get to the point where we've exhausted all of our mental abilities, we've exhausted our planning, we've exhausted our physical resources, our money, our time, we're, we, 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 we're, we're, we're dead broke in terms of what we can extend anymore and to solve the problems in our lives. And then that's where we come to the point where we say, well, you know, <laughs> I've got to turn to God because nothing else is working. And that place of desperation is where prayer begins. It's where prayer begins. If I look back in the periods of my life, there were, it, it, it's, <laughs> I can look at seasons where God was instructing me in prayer. And each of those seasons began with a time of desperation. Initially, even my enter into the ministry began out of a place of desperation and crying out to see my friends come to know Jesus Christ. Some of you guys know Shane DeHaan. He was a youth leader in the church that I attended as a junior and senior in high school. Um, and I had these friends 
and I was a brand new Christian, and I saw their lives were really terrible, and I really cared for them, and they wouldn't listen to my um, overbearing and legalistic preaching. And so I complained to Shane about it, and he said, George, you've got to pray. I go, what do you mean? He said, you've got got to go to God and ask him to start working in their lives. And I said, oh, okay, I did. So I started praying, and lives started changing. I couldn't believe it. Dysfunctional work contexts where I felt like I was under leadership that wasn't being responsible. Financial weaknesses in seasons throughout our lives. Family members in great need. I can look back and see. And eventually, eventually, all of these various experiences, these places of desperation, put me into a, a stream where, where prayer just became a part of living. It's like breathing. The gentleman that wrote this book, um, his wife and two daughters were killed in an automobile accident. Him and another child was safe, and they were all in the same car. And, and after that, he, he would pray for his remaining family member. And he said that prayer was like breathing. I needed that. He needed, he, he needed to draw near to the heart of God and to plead with God and to ask God for continued protection for the, his loved ones. And that's, that's where God is wanting us to get to. He's wanting, uh, he's wanting us to get to a place where, our, where we realize that our circumstances are always so desperate, all right? Sometimes we see and experience really desperate situations. But if, we, if, we, if, we, if we're like Habakkuk, where he's not just taking notice of what's going on in his own personal life, but he's looking out into the world. We see a lot of violence that we can explain. We have got national and global issues and geopolitical stuff going on that is really troubling in a lot of ways and is bringing a lot of suffering to a lot of people. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in the Syrian civil war. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. So we should see, if, we are, if, we are, if we're praying the Lord's Prayer Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to not just look at the desperate situations in our own lives, but the desperate situations in the world. God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And enter into a a rhythm and a lifestyle of prayer where we are observant of our own lives and observant of our own families and observant of our own church and cities and nation and nations of the world and, and enter into prayer on this. We look at the second question. Why do our prayers go unanswered? And this is a crazy answer. We need unanswered prayer. We need unanswered prayer. Tim Keller says this. He says, prayer is the only, the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things that he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. Think about that one for a little while. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. 
Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. We have to. We need unanswered prayer. Now, a lot of you are parents, and if you're not parents, remember back to when you were a kid. And you ask your parents for things. If you were to just, if you were to just keep doling out things to your kids when they ask, you know, especially like at the, in, the, in the grocery store and there's all the candy and ice cream and everything else by the checkout. Can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? If you just kept giving your kids everything they asked for, whenever they asked for it, what, what kind of kids would you be raising? Spoiled, kids. Spoiled selfish kids. That's exactly right. And, and not only that, if you don't train them to long for and ask for the good things but keep giving them the things that they just immediately want to make themselves immediately happy, what kind of things are they going to continue to be asking for long-term? Junk. Junk. We need unanswered prayer. We need unanswered prayer. Dark places in our lives reveal the light. Conflict produces climax and resolution. Like any good story. If you think of your life as a story, you know, think of any movie you like with heroes or any book that you like with, with a protagonist and a, an antagonist and a climax and plot and all. Think about it. The good books, the good stories, the good movies are where you see people go through tremendous, almost insurmountable struggle and conflict. Right? And then there's a, then there's a climax and you don't know how it's going to turn out, but it turns out, and their lives are changed, good comes, but they've been transformed through the process, evil has been overcome. You, know, you can think of, put, a, put a, a Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, great, not, whatever you want. Put your story in there, the ones you like. Without the conflict, without the struggle, you wouldn't have the joy and the experience of changing and overcoming Unanswered prayer creates persistence. Persistence clarifies our mind, reinforces our determination, and deepens our desire for the things that really matter. For some reason, persistence in the end gets results, though perhaps not the results we wanted, at least at the time. It reminds me to keep repeating to myself to persist in prayer even when it seems vain and foolish and to keep our eyes peeled for the strange ways that God may answer our prayers. When we're suffering and when we're in pain, we know that there needs to be some sort of a solution. But who's to say that we know what that solution is? Who's to say that we can understand that the depths of the struggle that is going on in our mind and in our spirit and all of the circumstances that may be affecting us? We don't, we don't comprehend all of these things very well. But God does. God does. God knows where we're at. God knows where he's wanting to take us. And our persistence in prayer and God not just giving in but in developing in us the patience and the perseverance and the transformation so that we know ourselves more and we know God more, this, this is what God is after, and it's ultimately what we're after too. It's ultimately after what we're after too. Third, how do we pray? 
This is a complaint. This is a lament. This, this prayer is full of emotion. I've already mentioned that the word call here, it means to cry out in a successive series of screams. When have you cried out to God with a successive series of screams? The next word, cry, so he says, I call out to you, I cry out to you. The crying here, it's the term that is used for when a woman is in the middle of labor. All right, I've, I've seen that four times in person. Women in labor, they don't care who's around. They don't care what's going on. The pain is so extreme. They're just crying out. And everybody around understands, right? When have we cried out as a woman in labor? Or it also means when a military general is summoning his armies. It's not going to be like Tommy. Okay, armies, let's go. It's going to be, hey, we've got to take the hill. Or we've got to defend our city. Let's go, armies. You know, it's the classic, I remember... Uh, I can't even remember the guy's name anymore, the Braveheart guy. When, he, when he's calling to attention in the movie Braveheart, Mel Gibson, that's the guy. You know, that is one of the greatest scenes in that movie where he is calling his armies to battle. I love this quote. There's a few books that I'm going to refer to a lot. The, the next one that we're going to look at next week in, is called uh, um, When God Disappoints You by Philip Yancey. But Sitzer says this, what God can't tolerate is a plastic saint, a polite believer, someone who plays a part but never gets inside the soul of the character. God prefers working with people who like to fight. So I think that we need to understand that God can handle our honest, emotion-filled expressions of of anguish our complaints our anger he's mad habakkuk is mad and he is frustrated and he is tired of waiting for god we can approach god that way habakkuk was a reader of the psalms start reading the psalms psalm 13 how long o lord must i wait for you to hear me. How long, O oh Lord, must I wait while my enemies exalt over me? We need to we need to we need to, <laughs> we need to stop being sober-minded Midwesterners in our prayers. And and express to God what's going on. Don't, don't dump your emotions out onto the people around you. Go dump them out to God. He can handle it. All right? We as people can't handle everyone's emotions being dumped on us in anger or frustration or impatience, but God can handle it. God can handle it, and he knows how to respond to us. Finally, why do we keep praying? Why do we keep praying? There's not a lot of information in these few verses on this, but we will see towards the end of the book. But even in these few verses, I think what's pretty clear is that Habakkuk knows God. Habakkuk knows God. 
he knows that God can hear him in this way. And he knows that God helps those who call out to him. He knows that. He knows that ultimately God is good, which is why he is so frustrated that in the face of all this evil and injustice, the oppression of the poor and the weak and the marginalized, the greediness, the child sacrifices, the, the prostitution, the human trafficking, in the midst of all this evil, the blood, I, don't, I don't know what it means that, that blood filled the city from one end to the, I don't know what that means. Was there like a river of blood in all of the streets? It sounds terrible. So God, Habakkuk knows that God is good, which is why he is so, uh, he's just dumbfounded by why God isn't doing something. But he knows at his core that God is good and that he will not forever suffer injustice or oppression. He will not forever suffer arrogance and greed. And he will eventually fulfill his promises of delivering a king. And we We see a hint of it in chapter 3, Habakkuk's hope in that future king. Well, you know, the king came, to conclude our time here this morning, the king came, and he had a similar prayer. Jesus had a similar prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he went to God, and he is in anguish. It says that he sweat blood. And he cries out to God and he says, God, not my will, but your will be done. But if there's any way that I could possibly avoid this death on the cross thing, I would really prefer that. That Jesus prayed that. Jesus prayed that. That prayer did not get answered the way Jesus wanted it to be answered. But God did answer the prayer. He did not let his son suffer and decay in the ground. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And then went and ascended into heaven and is sitting now at the right hand of the Father with all of the world and its rulers at his feet. Jesus knew God. Habakkuk knew God. And we are called to pursue and engage God in a violently emotional, expressive, honest way. When we get to our places of desperation, now if, you're in a, if, if you feel like you should be in a place of desperation and you're not, feeling it, it's because you have a hard heart. Some of us need to have our hearts softened, and usually the pain is the way that God does that. And so I would encourage you, open yourself up to the pain that you're already in and and start expressing where you're at. And let go of that anger and that hard-heartedness and dump it on God. That's what Habakkuk did, and that's, that's what Jesus did. And although... Our circumstances may not change for a long time or ever because Jesus went into death with God out answering that specific prayer. We can hold tight to the fact that God does 
know us, God does love us, God is good, and God will eventually answer our prayers. Because ultimately our prayers are for one thing. God, please deliver me from this suffering. Please deliver me from this pain. Please deliver the world from this pain. And bring your kingdom. And bring your kingdom. So we're going we're gonna to go through this process with Habakkuk. We're going to go through some more back and forths with Habakkuk and God. And through it, I hope that we all are trained to approach God in this way and develop a steadfastness while we wait for God to answer our prayers. Let me pray.